Welcome back to another very special episode of For Fintech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Before we get to today's episode, just one quick housekeeping item. If you're a fan of the show and would like to receive every new episode in your inbox, go to forfintechsake.com and sign up there. All right, now on to today's guest. My guest today is Aaron Shapiro, CEO at Carver Edison. Carver Edison is a New York City-based startup revolutionizing how employee stock purchase plans work. They work with publicly traded companies to increase stock plan participation through their cashless participation technology. We dig into employee stock purchase plans, aka ESPPs, what cashless participation means to the market and to the humans that are benefiting from it, as well as Aaron's story and how he even figured out how to work in this world and how Carver Edison came to be. It's a great story. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aaron Shapiro. Well, Aaron, welcome to For Fintech Sake, my friend. How is your day going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. It's uh, It's been a crazy week in finance, but uh, perfect time to, to connect with you. Yeah, I mean, let's 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 go there for half a second. How much time are you spending doing the actual work of Carver Edison, and how much time are you spending watching CNBC and uh, people like Chamath and AOC and everybody else pontificating about Robinhood? Yeah, still staying really focused on on what we're building, uh, but just being in the, the capital markets generally is kind of hard to miss it. Um, but it's it's been really cool. I mean, this has been nothing short of capital markets history, um, and it's happening at at a time where socially a lot of things are changing. So more than anything, it's been just really cool to to watch and see how the different parts of the ecosystem all come together here, and just really be sort of watching history unfold. Yeah. I mean, it's been nothing if not a historical year thus far, right? Like you're in the middle of a meeting and then the capital insurrection happens and you're in the middle of a meeting and then suddenly everybody stop, they stop, uh, they halt trading on GameStop, like very different levels of, uh, insanity but at the same time all just a lot of insanity and we're only a couple weeks in uh it's going to be a fun start to the year 2020 was uh was a fun year and 2021 is off to uh just as fun as uh, of a start oh yeah man i i've just decided that i'm bullish on 2022 i'm kind of you know i'm i'm already over 2021 and i think we're what not even at the end of january yet so i'm it's off to a great start great start uh, that's awesome Let's talk about some more uh, some more positive things. So Carver Edison, we'll get there eventually, but let's start with the Aaron background. Where are you from? Kind of what led you to this insane world of entrepreneurship that you're living in now? Yeah, so I'm from Queens originally, um, and I grew up um, in a small little apartment in Queens in a really working class neighborhood. And one of the amazing things about growing up in Queens is from a really young age, you're exposed to to just about everything, culture, languages, you name it. Um, so it was an incredible lesson in diversity for me from a really young age. Um, 
And I'd always sort of just been interested in, in building things. My brother and I, as kids growing up, would sort of build things, tinker with things. Um, and, um, and what that turned into was I, I wound up uh, spending most of my summers as a baseball player, wound up going to Babson, small little business school up in Boston. Um, and then um, right out of Babson, jumped into the institutional investing world um, to really focus on um, how to merge the intersection of capital markets with doing good for people in the real world. So um, the firm I went to work for, which was a startup investment shop, started with one client, 150 million in assets, took it to $4 billion uh, over the course of two years, focused exclusively on investing on behalf of nonprofits. And that for me uh, has always been something I've been fascinated by. And I think it probably started just riding the subways, kind of looking around saying, what can I do to, to, to help people and make a difference? And it just so happens in my case, uh, that tool uh, that I've used is finance and the capital markets to bring that to life. Um, but it's kind of the true New York story. Um, it's how to help hardworking people have more opportunity and, and leveraging sort of the capital markets um, to bring that to life. Yeah. I mean, the, the average American, I mean, kind of we're joking about Robin Hood, right? But the average American having access to equity, having access to stock ownership is not a small deal. And there's a slippery slope of a conversation about Robin Hood and if they should have access to leverage and access to a lot of the other things that, you know, Robin, Robin Hood gives them access to, but let's skip over that and go to Carver Edison and go to employee uh, stock purchase plans. So explain number one, what is an employee stock purchase plan? I, when we first talked about it, I was like, Oh yeah, it's an ESOP, but it's not. And it's also not what, you know, startups are used to talking about. It's a unique construct. So let's, let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's rewind the clock for just some historical context. So back in 1954, the equity market started this tear. For about 10 years, the equity markets returned about 10% a year uh, on an annualized basis leading up to 1964. In 1964, think about where the world was. There was a, a massive civil rights push happening, but also wealth inequality uh, was huge because there was this there was this divide between the folks that were participating in the stock market and racking up 10% annualized returns over the course of 10 years and everyone else who was missing out on it. So Congress got together as part of Johnson's war on poverty uh, and they created uh, the employee stock purchase plan. And the employee stock purchase plan, which was created in 1964, was a direct response to wealth inequality. And it was a vehicle that was des designed to help America's working class participate meaningfully in the stock market, but on a risk adjusted basis. Uh, and it was actually part of the same uh, piece of legislation that created uh, Medicare and Medicaid. And the general idea at the time was we need to provide meaningful opportunity for people to build wealth, but also provide a safety net at the same time. So employee stock purchase plans at a really high level give employees of publicly traded companies the opportunity to buy stock at a discount, usually off the lower of the starting or the ending price 
over a six month period. So Tesla is a really good example of this. If you're an employee at Tesla, you can buy stock at a discount from the price from many months ago. So a lot of employees there are buying stock at sometimes 50, 60, 70% discount. And it's an opportunity no hedge fund in the world has access to. They would all kill to have access to it, but it's, it, it, this enhanced protection for employees is something that was designed by Congress back in the 60s, 14 years before the 401k even came into existence to provide a risk-adjusted way for people to participate in the stock market. And, and today, just about all of America's leading employers um, uh, across NASDAQ and the S&P 500 have employee stock purchase plans. Um, and uh, it, it's really been remarkable to see both the wealth that it's helped create over time for people, but also that these plans really haven't changed since the 60s. The world has obviously come a long way since the 1960s. Employee stock purchase plans are exactly today what they were back in 1964. Uh, and we've really um, set out on, on a crusade to bring employee stock purchase plans into the modern world. What's the problem? It sounds like a generally positive thing for the world. It's kind of like the 401k. There's a lot of benefit to the employer, seems to be open to doing it. Like what's the delta that citizens can kind of closing? Yeah, so the big problem with employee stock purchase plans is most people can't afford to participate. Um, so when you look at the numbers, only about 30% of people participate in the first place. And when you think about what that means, by not participating in an employee stock purchase plan, your average employee misses out on about a 4% raise every year just by participating. So uh, in order to really solve that problem, you have to make it possible for number one, people to be able to afford to participate in the plan, but to also do it in a way that's shareholder friendly, because when public companies use a lot of shares, there's dilution for shareholders. So to really bring those two worlds together, uh, you, need, you need to find a solution for how to close the affordability gap, but also do it in a shareholder friendly way, which is exactly what we've done uh, with our flagship product called Cashless Participation that makes it for and makes it possible for employees of public companies to maximize their contribution to their company stock plan and do it in a way that's shareholder friendly at the same time. So what is it about it that makes it shareholder friendly? Because I could imagine, uh, you know, if I was the CEO of a company and I have 300,000 employees and they're buying shares of stock at 70% discounts, I could, I could see a world where that's not preferable uh, and, and helpful. How, how does it become shareholder friendly? Yeah, so at a really high level, um, it's sort of a combination of the cash coming into the company, because when people participate in their company stock plan, that's that's cash coming into the company that the company can reinvest. Uh, and there's also some incredible um, tax and accounting treatment around employee stock purchase plans that really makes it advantageous to employees. And on the tax side of things, for example, one of the things uh, that we did is we sort of played a small part in making ESPP history. We got what's called a private letter ruling from the IRS. It was the first private letter ruling in 14 years from the IRS that showed that a public company 
can add cashless participation to their stock plan um, while uh, the, having the plan still retain qualified tax status so the company can get sort of the benefits of that. Um, so it, it's really, employee stock purchase plans are really a unique vehicle that make it possible for employees to have more opportunity, but also for shareholders uh, to, to be rewarded for providing that opportunity to their workforce. What was that process of getting that IRS letter like? I mean, especially in you know the world that we've been living in the past couple of years, I think the, R- the IRS is pretty damn busy. So, like, did you have to pull some strings? Were you waiting out somebody outside somebody's office, just like knocking on the door every day? How how did you make that happen? And no, not at all. And and honestly, it was it was such an incredible privilege to to work with the folks at the IRS who are so talented uh, and and know the regs uh, inside and out. It, it was really a privilege and they. The nice part about working with um, with government agencies generally is there's process. There's a really defined process for kind of how to make these things happen. Um, and I, I, I really enjoyed the experience. And I know our, our team and we had a really talented team um, uh, of folks working on this. Um, our team really enjoyed it as well. So it, it was an incredible example of um of uh, regulators uh, working with with private enterprise to uh, evaluate a potential solution to a problem um, and and help bring it to life. I love it, man. That's the the nicest thing I've ever heard anyone say about the IRS. That's that's good stuff. I, I, I Zach, I, I, I got to tell you, I was I was so amazingly impressed, and it was really a privilege to 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 work with the team at the IRS. Um, the system works; it absolutely positively works. And maybe I say that because we we got a favorable outcome, but the system absolutely does work. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a system that's hit scale. That's for sure, right? We can't whatever the the failings or the you know the deltas that need to be closed there are the the system does work. It takes in revenue and puts out refunds and like they they do the job that we expect of them. So, what else can you say about a government agency? Like, I think that's good stuff. Talk me through the cashless participation piece. I think it there's a kind of cursory understanding of it just based on kind of the name of it, right? Like you're participating without putting forth cash, but how does that actually manifest itself? And for the sake of the listeners that don't have, you know, a flow chart ahead in, in front of them, like how can you describe that in words in a way that actually kind of makes sense to a second grader like myself? Yeah. So let, let's start with a regular employee stock purchase plan. The way a regular employee stock purchase plan works is you sign up, uh, you select how much of your income you want to contribute to the plan over the course of the six-month period. Every two weeks for that six months, money comes out of your paycheck. And then at the end of the six-month period, the money you've contributed goes towards buying stock at a discount. The problem with that, though, is you can all, your participation is limited to whatever you can afford from your paycheck. And increasingly, uh, things are getting expensive. Most people just can't afford the luxury of seeing their paycheck get smaller. Um, So with cashless participation, uh, the process is nearly identical. Employees sign up, they select how much of their income they want to contribute to the plan. Every two weeks for that six months, money gets taken out of their paycheck. And then at the end of the six month period, um, by working with the company, um, we basically make it possible for employees to buy the full number of shares as if the employee had contributed the money out of their pocket from the very beginning. And the net effect to the employee is without having 
to worry about sending anyone money or, or, or have money taken out of their bank account or whatever, when they log into their brokerage account, they're going to see more shares than ever that they own outright. They don't have to pay anyone back. All of that machinery kind of happens behind the scenes and the employees are left owning more stock that they didn't pay anything for, um, which is which is pretty powerful. And in, in the results we've seen so far, what that generally translates to is the equivalent of an about 11% raise for users of cashless participation so far, which is in a world where median wage growth is, you know, flat, maybe one, two percent. That's really powerful. And that that's exactly what we're on a mission to do. We're on a mission to prove that you can absolutely provide more opportunity to employees in a risk adjusted way, but you can do it in a shareholder friendly way at the same time, um, which is a really powerful combination. Makes a lot of sense. So how does the, well, I guess let's even start a little further back. Who do you consider your customer at Carver Edison? Is it the company? Is it the employee? Like who do you sell to? So we're an enterprise business. So we, we sell directly to the companies. Uh, We have a couple, we have a couple different types of customers though. We have obviously the company, but then we also have the employees at the end of the day, we're making, um, uh, we're making it possible for employees to hopefully over time build wealth. Um, so we think of our customers, um, and it really two levels, it's the company, uh, and then it's the employees that, that we're serving at those companies. How do you make money? All of this sounds so good. You know, like there's nothing about this that sounds sketchy or bad for the world. Like it all just seems like a net positive for the world. But how does Carver Edison end up making money at the end of the day? And also, like, I understand, you know, the high level of it, but what is the product that they're interacting with? Like, is it a a portal? Is it basically just a movement of money going in a different way? Like, what is what is the experience? Yeah, so. We'll start, we'll start with the first piece. Uh, we make money much like FedEx and UPS make money. FedEx and UPS get paid to deliver packages. We get paid to deliver stock. So one of the things we've done, which, um, which is pretty powerful, is we've built a technology, which actually we now have a couple patents on, that allows us to, to use the capital markets to have the folks on Wall Street pay for America's working class to own more stock. And that's a really powerful part of the story here, because especially from the employee perspective, we don't, when possible, want to charge fees to the employees. Uh, We want employees to have as much money as possible. So what we've done is we built technology to really shift that burden of cost away from the employee, away from the company, onto folks in the financial markets uh, who are happy to, to pay for delivery of stock. Uh, from a user experience perspective, um, what are what are the employees interacting with um, in particular? So we have uh, we have uh, a user experience uh, that that employees come in when they sign up through their company stock plan. They make their elections, uh, and then the rest kind of sits behind the scenes, as is usually the case with a lot of enterprise businesses. A lot of the machinery kind of sits behind the scenes, and in our case, a lot of our technology really is built um, around a very simple user experience on the front end, but with the horsepower on the back end to do all sorts of powerful things to kind of make the process work. It's interesting. It takes me to the question of who you're competition is. It almost feels like you're, you know, I I come from a robo advising background trying to get people to invest in their 401ks. And 
we had competitors, but I always felt like we were competing against apathy or, or a lack of education, I guess, like a lack of financial literacy. Who do you feel like is your biggest competitor and is it a company or is it kind of one of those ethereal concepts of education or something? You know, I think the biggest competitor, and there's there's a really famous quote out there. uh, I forget exactly who said it, but competition is all of the stuff. There is no shortage of stuff that that's going to uh, that's being put in front of HR and finance teams at companies that are good for employees, especially now where um, inclusion, equality, are such are such important things. I think part of it is, and and it, we spend a lot of time working with the internal teams at these companies. These teams get swamped; they get so overwhelmed by all of these cool offerings, uh, and I mean, student loan repayment repay, repayment benefits. Uh, or an example, um, earned income advances, earned wage access or earned wage access is another thing. There's just a lot of really cool stuff happening right now. So I, I, from our perspective, the competition is, is really about capturing the mind share of people that are looking for really cool solutions to really tricky problems. Um, but they're kind of overwhelmed and they have to figure out how to sort through all the different, uh, all the different pieces of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Being an HR leader in your experience, are they generally pushing these employee stock purchase plans similar to the way they push a 401k or similar to the way they push some of the more classical benefits? Or is it kind of like, Oh, and by the way, we have this other thing that's over here in the corner, but like, don't worry about it. Ultimately, companies, and a lot of this comes from just the conservative nature of public companies, companies want people to decide for themselves what kind of work. So, and especially in the past year or so, there, there's been this idea of really providing inclusive choices to employees. But for the most part, what we find is so many of the, of the great leading companies out there allow employees to pick for themselves. They, they say, hey, here are the options. We're going to make it super simple, really low cost for you to have a lot of a lot of amazing options for you to pick from. And you, the employee, can decide based on whatever your personal circumstances are, what works the best. And um, as we look at uh, 2020 and now looking into 2021, I think increasingly, um, a lot of companies uh, have really, from a philosophy perspective, said now's the time. Now, now's the time to fill some of these gaps, to take action, to really finally make it possible for for people um, to 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 be included, to have equal access and equal opportunity, but to do it in a risk-adjusted way, and and maybe most importantly money's not infinite for these companies. And and we saw it in 2020 where budgets got tighter. So there has to be a really strong business case behind whatever, whatever uh, the solution is that a company is using because these companies are budget constrained. And especially in a world where growth fluctuates and depending on what sector you're in, you can either be grown quickly or or maybe not growing at all. It's about ultimately protecting jobs. Um, So budgets, absolutely a factor for a lot of these companies. That makes sense. It seems like you're rounding out a set of employee benefits that 
have seemed obvious in in historical lenses. Like for me, the employee stock purchase plan is not a. Th- I like I've known that it's existed before talking to friends that function in some of these larger organizations, but it's always kind of seemed like this redheaded stepchild. So it's interesting to see you all kind of coming in and really making it a focus, which leads me to the question of investor feedback, specifically like when you're going and having conversations with VCs, when you're trying to explain your vision for Carver Edison to somebody that maybe isn't, you know, an absolute expert on this world, what's the feedback you get? Like, what is the, is there a general like, oh, it makes sense, but I don't see it going anywhere. Is there a like, eh, it's not going to work because of this or like, oh, you're on to something. So, you know, it's the next unicorn kind of thing. What are, what's the feedback you get around pitching this? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, raising capital for, for any entrepreneur is they're always going to be nose involved. That's, that's part of the process. Uh, and that, that's what you sign up for when, when, when you, when you start a company, um, we've been so lucky to be backed by some amazing people. Uh, some of our earliest investors are the founder, uh, the co-founder, uh, Betterment co-founder of Acorns, um, who have been there, who have done it and who get it because in FinTech landscape, um, it's not as simple as just standing up a front end and kind of making something happen. There's a lot of machinery that has to happen in the back end to really make it work. I, I think one of the things that I was lucky to learn in the institutional investing world that really served me well um, in building the company was understanding the perspective and the philosophy of the investor on the other side of the table, because a lot of it is just about investing criteria, investing framework, investing philosophy to really make sure that, um, that you're the right portfolio company for their investor base. And sometimes the philosophies just don't align where the problem you're solving is just different than the investment criteria, maybe uh, that uh, for the portfolio company, for the investor you're talking to. So I think more than anything, it's been um, it's been about really finding investors that share our philosophy and understand uh, that this is a really complicated problem. And I mean, it's it's been around for, you know, almost 60 years now. And in a few short years, we've unwound sort of a lot of that, a lot of the complexity around it. But there's so much work to, to still be done. And it, it's such a big opportunity that affects so many people with trillions of dollars a year of capital loss. Um, so uh, for us, it's really been about finding, finding uh, the right philosophic alignment with our investors um, and, uh, and then just really growing with them over time. Yeah. It's not a company that's going to make sense for everybody. And it's not a company that's probably going to make sense even to a lot of, I would think the more, you know, classically Silicon Valley VCs that are, you know, going after the next, you know, Robin Hood or whatever. Like it is very much a different side of the world and it takes some work to understand what you're running after and understand the moat that you're building. So that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. But uh, I'll just say, I would not be an entrepreneur if I if I didn't say uh, those investors would be missing out because uh, Carver Edison can definitely get there. You wouldn't be, and I'm glad you did say it. What is the regulatory schema like for you all? You have the IRS letter. Are you having to interact with the SEC? Are you having to interact with with other regulators? And how much of a 
well, let's not use the term burden. How much uh, of an investment is it for you to interact with these different regulators? Yeah, be, being in the finance world, uh, it, it's regulated. And when, when you choose to build a business in, in the fintech world, it is a regulated business. And thankfully, uh, we get to stand on the shoulders of, of some of the great companies like the Betterments, the Acorns, the Robinhoods, who have on, all come before and really fueled an ecosystem of technology uh, to solve some of these regulatory challenges. So it's definitely uh, probably easier for us today than it was uh, 10 years ago when some of those companies were being built. But uh, nonetheless, it, it requires careful attention, really careful work. Um, in, our, in our world, um, because we're dealing with stock, uh, there's SEC compliance. Um, there's, uh, because we're dealing with employee stock purchase plans, there, there's IRS, um, and then there's, uh, there's the, the FINRA, the broker dealer side of things as well. So it's really the, the trifecta, but, um, just, uh, another quick historical note, it's not an accident that the FinTech ecosystem is regulated and, and what's been happening over the past week or so, uh, with GameStop and beyond is, is an example but these laws were created back in the in the 1930s. I mean, 1933, 1934, when the Securities Act laws first came into place, it was designed to protect customers who were buying and selling securities. And the laws have grown and they've evolved over time to, to change with the landscape. Um, but in our opinion, um, uh, regulators are um, as uh, regulators uh, are a good thing, and uh, you, you, there's been an immense push on their part um, to work with fintech companies to find solutions that allow for customer protection, uh, because um, no one, of course, wants to see customers. Um, get heard in the process along the way. So it's really make sure important to make sure for, for folks who are either in the fintech world right now and considering building company in the fintech world to take compliance seriously because it is a big deal. Um, but there are a lot of smart people out there that can help with it. Yeah. So yeah, plus one to everything you just said. I think the the historical lens is especially interesting here. Like listening to you talk more and more, it almost, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes kind of thing where the time frame that you're talking about when employee stock purchase plans were created and came to be, there was very much a group of haves and a group of have nots, right? And the goal, it sounds like, was for the have nots to move a little closer to the haves and to be able to participate in some of the equity growth and everything else. Do you feel like we're in a similar time right now with the kind of bifurcation of wealth and the 1% this and the 1% that like, and, and coming out of a pandemic, honestly, too, and kind of disjointing a lot of that even further. Does it seem, are you seeing rhymes in the times <laughs> that we're living in? Absolutely. I mean, when, when you think about securities regulation, going back to the thirties, well, that was, that was in the middle of the great depression when there wasn't a, there wasn't a run on GameStop stock. There was a run on the banks. So, uh, yeah, history absolutely has a lot of uh, parallels in it, especially in the financial markets. I think one of the things that's really changed that we uh, have baked into everything we do is it's not just about providing people opportunity, because you see in a volatile market what can go wrong sometimes. It's about doing, doing it in a way where the product itself is inherently designed to provide protection 
to the user. So in the case of cashless participation, because people end up owning more stock that they didn't pay for, the break even changes. So rather than participating in employee stock purchase plan, you buy stock at a 15% discount and boom, the stock has gone down more than 15%. You've now started losing money on your investment. With cashless participation, the stock price sometimes has to go down more than 50%, five zero percent before people start losing money, which is an inherent design feature of the product. And what it does, especially for the people who have forever had to sit on the sidelines because they can't afford to participate is it gives them the luxury of being able to ride out the volatility, which they, which they wouldn't otherwise be able to get. And especially for people like my mom, who was the inspiration for this company, one of the reasons why she over time has struggled to invest is because she was scared of losing money because she had two young boys at home who she was trying to provide a future for and she didn't have the luxury to be able to take the risk around market volatility. Uh, and that for us is something that um, that's really important to bake into everything we do to make sure that, yeah, we're giving people more opportunity, but at the same time, we're doing a better job protecting them. And the next time the world blows up, the products don't blow up. Credit default swaps in, in 2008, mortgage-backed securities, there were a lot of sort of structural components in there that caused issues. I think we're part of our mission is to make sure that the next time the world blows up, the products don't fall apart. And when the products really start to go, uh, when the markets really start to go south, there's protection baked in uh, for people that need it the most. Uh, if you think about the old country where, where most people used to fly, seems like forever ago, when you get on the plane, they always do those announcements and they put the life jacket on over their head and they say, well, you can inflate it by blowing into this tube, but if you hit water, don't worry, it'll, it'll blow itself up on its own. That in a lot of ways is kind of what's required with financial products, where there has to be these fundamental design features in the way these products get built. So if the markets hit water, people are protected and they don't have to do anything about it. It's just kind of baked into the feature itself. How does that end user think or experience Carver Edison, right? Cause I'm listening to you talk and it sounds like you're, you're doing a public good, right? At the end of the day, you're giving access to something that did not, it existed, but there were barriers to entry. You're lowering them, yada, yada, yada. At the end of the day, does the user understand that Carver Edison is the one that is providing this cashless participation opportunity? Does it seem like, you know, GE is doing something really nice for you or do they get to interact with the brand in a way that is positive and develops actual like brand affinity for you specifically? Yeah, so as as part of the process, they get they get to interact uh, with the brand. They know that cashless participation is a product that uh, obviously we built uh, and and is sort of our uh, is our core competency. Um, but for the most part, um, as we build brand affinity with uh, the employees of these companies, where they really are going to get to experience it is as they benefit from stock ownership over time. That's where we're really going to build our affinity, where we're going to make it possible for people to, yeah, have more opportunity. And they'll notice when they sign up for cashless participation, we exist. But when they're, when they, 
when they log into their brokerage account one day after uh, you know maybe a few years working at a company and see and things hopefully going well they'll be able to look at it and say wow that really made a difference or if they're in a position where uh, there's an emergency and they need to sell potentially some of that stock, um, which by the way, there are no penalties on. If you move jobs, change jobs to your stock, you can access it whenever you want, um, we'll be there for them. And that's where we build our trust, our loyalty, our affinity. Um, so that the next company someone goes to, they say, hey, cashless participation, if we have a stock plan, it's, it's something we, um, we, we definitely need. Yeah, it's like uh, compound interest of brand affinity. It makes sense. It just gets stronger over time. And what's tricky about it from uh, from uh, just a fintech solution perspective is to solve some of these really complicated solutions. It takes a long time because these aren't things that necessarily happen overnight. So it's important to kind of think about that in the general scheme of of how long it's taken to get to this point and how long it also takes to really build that trust and, and how long uh, it takes for people to really experience the benefit of it. Um, but wealth accumulation takes time. And that's part of the reason why our time horizon is really long uh, because we understand that this problem has been around for 60 years and um, we're, we're just in really kind of the top of the first inning here in, in solving this problem for, not just America's workforce, but the international workforces uh, of public companies everywhere. So being in the first innings, what are the kind of second, third, fourth innings hold? I mean, it seems like this is a big enough problem that taking your existing solution and scaling it internationally, scaling it in the U.S. is going to build a big ass company in and of itself. But is there a future where you're vertically integrating or something and you become a plan administrator or... I don't know. I'm sure you're dealing with a lot of third parties that are maybe not as uh, not as technologically advanced as you and maybe some chances to kind of take those and make them part of the business as well. Yeah, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of exciting stuff on uh, on our roadmap. I, I think the biggest thing that we're focused on immediately is really making sure from an execution perspective, we're nailing uh, cashless participation. I mean, uh, th- this is a huge, huge problem. Um, but it's also really technically complex. Um, so right now we're, we're really focused on sort of nailing um, or nailing the execution on cashless participation. We've had some great case studies um, done so far. There's a great one out with E-Trade, now part of Morgan Stanley, uh, on, on what we've done and what we've been able to accomplish. Um, and uh, I'm really excited for what 2021 holds and, and beyond. Um, we got a lot of coffee and a lot of work in our future. I love it. Well, quickly expand on that. Uh, expand on that use case. Expand on kind of some of the wins that you had with with E Trade. Whatever you you know want to share at a high level, at least. Yeah. So there, there's only so much I can share because we're we're dealing with publicly traded companies here. Um, but at a really high level, um, what we were able to do is. Um, Working, working with a, a public company on, on NASDAQ, um, drive uh, almost 100% participation in this company's stock plan with, 80, with 80% of people using cashless participation, which translated to um, uh, about an 11% raise for the average employee, where I, I think the numbers were uh, an average employee put about maybe 
$3,400 into the plan and turn that into $14,000 in six months or something like that. I mean, yeah, the, the, the results were really amazing. Um, but I, one of the things maybe we're the most proud of is what the long-term ownership has done for those employees. Just about all of the employees at this company have held their stock uh, and the stock has continued to grow and it's really allowed people um, to do some amazing things. We, we heard from one of them uh, that they've used some of the proceeds uh, as a down payment for a house. And I mean, those are, those are the kind of things that are really just so cool to, to hear the stories on because at the end of the day, I know in my mom's case, it cost her over a million dollars by not being able to participate in her company's stock plan over the course of 10 years. And that's a life-changing amount of money. And and when I started the company, I really wanted to to make sure and, and felt an obligation to make sure that no kid, no parent, no family would ever have to miss out on that opportunity again. Uh, so it's really cool. Uh, and I know it's something that drives the team here every day to make sure that no one ever has to sit there and say, well, this incredible opportunity was built for me, but I just can't afford to participate. So I'm going to have to miss out on it. We think that should never happen. Um, so we spend uh, every day focus, focusing on how to really make sure uh, that families everywhere have the opportunity to build wealth over time, um, and they don't have to miss out on some of the um, uh, some of the opportunity and, and potentially life changing moments that can happen by just participating in a stock plan. Yeah, man, with a mission like that and a rallying cry like that, like you don't even need that much coffee, right? You can just hop out of bed and get to it. You got you got something actually driving you day to day, which matters in the world. That's powerful. Yeah, and as as we think about it. The, the question is always why, right? Like, why is it this way? And um, it, it's hard. People just don't make enough money nowadays to to keep up. And that's a really hard, tricky problem to solve. And um, the, the fintech ecosystem, I think, has done a wonderful job innovating to help, uh, to help address uh, a part of the problem. And we're playing our small part in, um, in really bring that to life. And as I like to say, um, we're part of FinTech 3.0, where FinTech, FinTech 1.0 was really just kind of getting everyone online. The E-Trades of the world brought online trading to the world. The Betterments and Acorns of the world uh, really kind of scaled that. They built out the highways in some respects, and now FinTech 3.0 is kind of building the exit ramps um, to start building some of these some of these neighborhoods along the way. So I, I'm really excited um, about certainly what the future holds for us. We have a super bright future ahead, um, but also just more broadly uh, from a FinTech perspective, um, it's an awesome, awesome time. And uh, I wanna make sure to acknowledge all of the great entrepreneurs who long before it was cool to build a FinTech were making it possible because now when the world gets kind of crazy, people have the ability to pull out their phones and make decisions around their finances in a way that they never used to have access to. So the incredible entrepreneurs who for a long time have tried to, uh, to, to really simplify, democratize, and expand access to, to the capital markets have done an amazing job. And that certainly 
comes with sort of an asterisk on it because there are issues that happen uh, when some of these things work and, and don't work. Um, but from a secular perspective, um, the job has, has really been done and it's been really cool to, to, to be a part of. But I think the next chapter is going to be about continuing to build off of that great infrastructure to really help some of these more complicated problems that are really tricky to get to the bottom of. I love it, man. That's a beautifully hopeful note to end on. And speaking of the future and speaking of FinTech 3.0, what can our listenership, what can the listeners, the FinTech nerds overhearing this right now do to help you, Aaron and Carver Edison in the future? Are you hiring? What can folks do to help you? And also where can folks get in touch with you to speak about said help? So best way to get in touch, carveredison.com. We're on Twitter. Feel free to, uh, feel free to, um, to reach out to us on Twitter as well. Um, but, or you can reach out through, uh, through the website. Uh, you reach out to me directly, Aaron at carveredison.com. Always around, uh, happy to chat. From the perspective of kind of how listeners can help, if you're passionate about helping people, you like the capital markets, go on our website, send us a note. We'd love to have you join the team. We are hiring for literally every position under the sun right now. So we'd love to have you join the team. And especially if to your listeners, if you've been fired up uh, listening to this, just as much as we're fired up about really helping to, to, to solve some of these really big problems, we'd love to have you on the team and look forward to, to meeting you. I love it. New York City based, but open to remote or how are you guys handling that? Right now, the, the world has changed so much that we're entirely open to remote. At the end of the day, it's about talent for us. And we want to find uh, the best people with the best talent um, who wake up every day and say, hey, let's go solve some really complicated problems that no one thinks can be solved. So if you like whiteboards, you like solving really complicated stuff, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're, in, if you're on a beach in Hawaii uh, or, or you're, uh, I, I don't know, you're skiing the Swiss Alps, we'd love for you to join the team. Aaron, thank you. Uh, I will put all of that kind of the details that you just noted and more about Carver Edison in the show notes and folks can find it there. Godspeed, my friend, you're doing good work and making the world a better place. And that is not always a thing that we can say about the world of finance that we live in. So I, I love what you're doing and I, uh, I hope to keep watching you grow. It, mean, it means a lot to me and, and really appreciate it. And thank you to you for telling the story. So it, so much, so much of it is, you know, sitting sitting in a dark room. But sometimes that doesn't uh, it doesn't matter all that much unless there are amazing people like you that kind of tell the story. So I mean, thanks for all you do. You, you, I mean, you've done some amazing stuff. I've listened to your stuff on Spotify. Like it's just so cool. So many so many amazing things. So keep it up, man. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For FinTech's Sake with Aaron Shapiro. If you want to learn more about Aaron and Carver Edison, I put pertinent links and more info in the show notes. Just take a look there. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and do all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the responsible host that I am. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and go outside, y'all. It's finally not cold. We can walk again. Bye.